what do you want? I want to hear you scream. Oh, yeah. We all want to hear Bull Pullman scream, don't we? I guess. <laughs> yeah. That movie is... Hmm, I, can't, I had not I can't seen wait it to get before. Oh. I had not seen it before. Ever. Oh, yes. Yeah, and I'm a huge Wes Craven fan. So. Right. Yeah. And I'm also a huge Dave and Cronenberg fan. This is going to be mm. an interesting episode because I don't know. It's and I picked the film. Oh, oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> well, this is this film is, trace. Yes, this oh, film wait, trace. You want to do it, Chris? You do it. No, I want you to do it. I always mess up the tagline. Do it. Just do it. I want you to okay, do it. we're going to see how this goes. Welcome <laughs> to Film Trace. This is a show that traces the conception, production, release, and execution of a film. Is that's that good. close that's enough? Good. That's right. close enough. Yeah, that's yeah. ballpark. That's what matters. <laughs> we are uh, joined by a guest uh, from the other side of the world today. He's actually in the future right now. Thank you uh, for joining us, Rob, from the Smoke and Mirrors podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah. Back from the tell future. Tell us about your podcast. Tell, yeah, us, yeah. What, tell us what's going on. Give us the plug. Uh, <laughs> so I'm from the Spoken Mirrors podcast. And what we do in the podcast is is kind of accumulate all the movie news from the week at different two different points. And we uh, we lay it out for people. Sometimes, nice. like the, the title suggests, Smoke and Mirrors, there's an illusion going on to what might actually be happening. And sometimes we, we, we get it pretty, pretty accurate. Uh, we also do... Nice. Uh, TV and movie reviews, uh, and it's it, it's been a wild, wild ride so far. Very cool. Um, did you guys do Yellow Jackets yet? I think I saw that in your last episode. Yeah, yeah. We just started the second season. Um, oh, God. So good. I, I was just I, watching that when I had to stop it for this podcast. I know. This I <laughs> the episode, too. Oh, man. It's, it's awesome. It's such a cool show. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, what are we thanks doing here? We're doing uh, uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Uh, I don't mean what episode is this in the cycle. We're out of order. I feel like Chris. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We've kind of we're doing the the thing where we just kind of record them all and then uh, dole them out for you guys one at a time. So uh, we are in the midst of the fourth episode right now, yes, covering the decade of the 1980s, based on a true story films that are, as Dan just said, uh, stranger than fiction, based on right. at least kernels of truth that are then, you know, dramatized and fictionalized to the greatest extent. And I, I'd, I'd go so far as to be brazen and say, <laughs> this is the strangest, uh, duo of films of the bunch. Yeah. I think that's a good, that's a, yeah, that's a good starting point. Uh, so what's the first film? Dead ringers, 1980, even Cronenberg, which I had never seen before. Have you guys seen it before? <laughs> are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've never seen it before. Um, no, yeah, like, I, um, Guess goes first, Rob, but then, I, yeah, I, I want to share. Sorry, I was going to say, I've got two kids, so working through a back catalog of anything, like, it needs to be curated. Yeah. So when you guys hit me up with the episode, <laughs> I was like, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I can see, like, like two, two films that are missing in the filmography of two, like, awesome directors. But, yeah, Dead Ringers, big surprise. Yeah. Awesome. Good you. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I did, a, I think we were kind of lockstep for a while there, right? Like the years following college, and I think my entry point for Cronenberg was uh, A History of Violence uh, came out. Yeah, nice. and so um, I immediately, like I had seen uh, The Fly on TNT's Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs. Of course. Yeah, and classic. I had, yeah. And, you know, I had heard of Scanners and, you know, mm. a few other of his films. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just started working my way through both watching and rewatching. For a lot of them, I was watching for the first time the, you know, uncut, not censored for American cable television versions <laughs> for the first time. And uh, Dead Ringers was just like prime, like, I I'm I'm graduated from college. I have my first job, but I don't have children yet. So like yeah. I have nothing to do except just like watch all the stuff I never have <laughs> had a chance to watch yet. And yes. this one this one fucked me up, guys. Yeah, um, I can imagine. How so old were you? So I was yeah, it was a uh, 2005, I believe, right around the time of History of Violence. Uh, so okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you, you know, know what's, what's pretty, crazy is that uh I, you know, I'm a big horror nerd fan <laughs> to some degree. And uh, I don't think I had seen a single David Cronenberg movie until oh, wow. like six years ago. Wow. Uh, nice. And what happened was uh, I, I, he always scared the shit out of me. 
Yeah. Like his movie, like the body horror stuff always really unnerved me in a way. I, you know, I loved like the scream slasher stuff and every all the classics. Um, but I just, Cronenberg was a little bit too weird for me, I think. And then uh, speaking of Joe Bob Briggs, he had a show on Shudder. So he moved over to Shudder yes. like, you know, whatever, five years ago. And he featured Rabbit um, on one of his shows. And I watched that and I was like, holy Fuck. I haven't seen that one like, yet. This guy's amazing. I didn't know that he was so like a gonzo. Like he is out there, out there. Yeah. Like, and there's like there's a whole there's recently a profile of him, the New Yorker, um, about how his first film was it Shivers? Uh yeah. Where he basically got he got evicted from his home because of that movie. <laughs> because the, someone wrote a, an op-ed in the Toronto Sun or something and said, this is disgusting, it's vile, and his landlord read it. And then thought he was making <laughs> pornography in his house. Wow. So he, his entire family got evicted from his house. Like, that's, this guy's like, he's not, he's not on the same plan as most people. Like, he yeah. is. And then yeah. since Rabid, I've been going back and watching stuff. Like, I'd never seen The Fly. Oh, wow. I watched that maybe like okay. two years ago, three years ago. Mind blowing. Yeah. Just yeah. absolutely mind blowing. But yeah, yeah so I was good. really, really excited to dive into this one because I know this is kind of regarded as uh, one of his better films, I think people say. Uh, obviously, yeah. some amazing performances here uh, in it as well. How do you want to dive into this, Chris? What do you think? Well, we got to start with what is the nugget of truth um, yes. at the center of uh, the film. And I think unlike a lot of based on true story movies, this one stemmed essentially from um, the discovery of the bodies of the guys uh, that Jeremy Irons characters are based on, which are, I mean, that is true. They, I, yeah. you know, they, they were fraternal twins, not identical. Um, but they were both gynecologists. They shared an apartment. They had their own practice together and they were very eccentric and they were both addicted to barbiturates. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, a handyman had discovered their bodies in the seventies and that prompted a novelist to, uh, adapt that for, uh, a book, a work of fiction. But, you know, that eventually led its way to, Cronenberg, and uh, he wanted to basically kind of try to start getting out of the uh, the horror ghetto, as yes. uh, <laughs> yeah, especially in the 1980s, yeah, right? Yeah. And we'll talk about yeah, Craven's attempt in the same the same yeah. year. Yeah. Um, but obviously, there's still a lot of trappings for both of them in both of the films we're going to discuss today. Yeah, uh, exactly. What is uh, what? Is, I'm curious to start. Like if that's the kind of piece that we're starting with is the deaths of these two guys, which was I think pretty well known for anybody that was probably going to see the movie. Like it was yeah. not, it shouldn't have been a surprise that you knew this was going to have a tragic ending to it. Uh, you know, as a whole Titanic situation, what, what <laughs> the journey, <laughs> yeah. the destination, right? Um, yeah. But I'm curious, like not only was Cronenberg like trying to do something a little bit different, uh, he was also. I mean, you also had Jeremy Irons, like mm. one of you know the the most like premier prestige, uh, serious actors yeah. of his time, and uh, I mean he was kind of pretty um, honestly and was not shy about it in the press to say that like he was he was gunning for an Oscar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what were what, what do you think Cronenberg and Irons were thinking? trying to like take this sort of tale and make it palatable for mainstream audiences. What do you think, Rob? Um, Well, I I think what was, what was sort of paramount for, for Jeremy Irons was getting the specifics down for both Bev and Ellie. He wanted them to be completely different people, but kind of almost literally sewn at the side. Like they, they share the same looks, but they have different uh, particulars about them. Uh, so, so like going in there with with the different methods that he kind of used to to separate them, but also make them the same. There were small nuance differences. Yeah, and I mean, I I think that that's one of the uh, I have my issues with Jeremy Irons in general. Um, or should should we say Jeremy's Iron? Right? Do we? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a reference. Uh, I had to do it. Classic. Um, what is? Uh, 
what's I think so still impressive so many years later with his performances here is that like with so much of this kind of time period and even further into the nineties with like multiplicity is like there were, it was like so overdone in so many instances. And there's many like darkly comic aspects to this film. And yet, I don't know. I feel like he, he hits the mark so well that it, 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 it really is the only Jeremy Irons performance that I like think about when I think of him, but maybe that's just me. Cause I don't really watch yeah. a lot of period dramas. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, uh, there's something that about this movie after like watching Cronenberg's earlier stuff, like even with the fly was what two years before this, mm. um, this feels so restrained yeah, uh, compared to his other stuff. And I think uh, Jeremy Irons, performances is, is definitely part of that. Like he went into it with a lot of intention. There was clearly a lot of thought given to exactly how they're going to portray these characters. I mean, there had to be from a technical perspective too. Like this is one of the first times, you know, we're really seeing two people on screen at the same time together, you know, a single person as two people. Uh, and so Cronenberg had to do a lot of work there. And so there's a ton of intentionality across the board, you know, going into the film. And I think the actual performance itself, uh, it almost comes across as like um, subtle. Which is mm. not something that like you're gonna say in a David Cronenberg movie like Big yeah. Drum or something. It's not like James Wood. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so like I think that's the one thing in the the flourishes here, the, the typical Cronenberg flourishes, the red in the operating room, mm. which I think he mentioned he wanted to make them look like they were like religious or like cardinals right. or something. Uh and then the of course the um the instruments uh, that he creates for mutant women, as he calls them. Yeah. Those are like very traditional Cronenberg flashes and accents. But yeah. besides that, he plays it pretty kind of down the middle um, and, and is creating something of like a... I don't even know what you would... So you, the, you, Chris, you mentioned that like he's trying to get out of horror. What would we call it? Rob, what would you call this? What would you? What genre would you call this movie? Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I don't think it's horror at all. It didn't play for me like a horror. It almost played like like a like an existential drama. You know yeah. what I mean? With, with, with thriller flourishes. Yeah, definitely. I definitely get a lot of thriller vibes to it and sort of like, um, we don't really know what they're up to. They seem to be playing off of each other. They keep, it's like almost like they're keeping secrets from each other and obviously from mm. their lover. Um and then it's, you know, it it becomes this almost like a mystery to it. And when you think about how the story started, it is a mystery because it mm. really does start from, you know, the deaths of these two gynecologists, brothers. No one knows where mm. they died. And there is a huge like Esquire article mm -hmm. um, that helped to get the book going and published um, about how New York was sort of obsessed with these, these guys dying and the, no one had any idea what's going on. Um, and I think one thing to also think about too, is that uh, if you have a chance to read the Esquire article, do it because it feels incredibly close to the movie. Right. Wow. Right. Like really close. <clears throat> uh, like it's almost like the beats in that article are represented mostly uh, kind of in harmony with what's on screen, which is, I don't know. It might be something to do with, do you, do you guys agree that it, 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 it feels different than other Cronenberg movies or am I kind of off base there? No, oh, yeah. I, I, I agree 100% with you. I mean, while, while it retains some of the aesthetic of other Cronenberg movies, it, the, the, the delve into madness, I think was, was so much more internal than the external yeah. stuff that we see in other Cronenberg movies. Yeah, I mean, I think that the movie that came to mind from his filmography the most for me upon my rewatch was actually uh, 2011's A Dangerous Method, the okay. basic, mm. you know, another true story uh, Cronenberg movie based on, yeah. you know, the the love triangle between uh, Jung and Freud. Uh, mm. And you have, you know, a similar kind of love triangle between the two brothers and the character of Claire, which by the way, just sidebar, like what I, I <clears throat> knew that I remember that the actress that played the female lead here was not somebody that, you know, I had known from other stuff, but like also I I'm just so confused about where she went. 
Um, and she probably was like a local, I think, right? Like because she shot this in Montreal and Toronto. Um, mm. and she might have just been like a local actress, or but actor. she's—I think she's incredible in it. I think oh, that, she's phenomenal. Yeah, it's 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 amazing to 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 have somebody able to like hold their own with Jeremy Irons, like two different versions of Jeremy Irons. Yeah, um, is is pretty impressive. But like that 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 psychological piece is as much about the kind of love story that is cut short uh, here as and like there's a lot of horror and torment in that piece of it, as well as with like the whole like identity madness addiction piece as well. And Mm. that really like sang for me a lot more this time, because I think perhaps, especially, you know, in my impressionable young twenties, I was watching it and just being like, well, that's fucked up. She's chewing on Siamese twin thing. And they're not actually Siamese twins. That was the the one scene where I was like, Oh, this feels like Cronenberg. Yeah. yeah, Like that's like a typical Cronenberg thing. Yeah, it really, it also kind of feels like uh, maybe like later days on the set, and he's like, "I, I just got to do something, guys. Can you, can you work this up and prosthetics for me?" Super weird. With yeah. like, like, I got to get some weird concoction out of my head. Um, that's funny. Like uh, the remember the film opens with them as young like boys, mm-hmm. and they basically proposition a young woman. And she's like, no, kind of fuck off. Uh, but there was, I, I thought that was interesting when it opened the movie. And then I came across this quote um, from a spin interview he did when this movie came out. And I kind of, because you, when you mentioned that her and her, like, how everything's flowing through her, I thought it was like, yeah, what is Cronenberg trying to get at? And I thought this was an interesting quote. It's a little bit longer, but I'm going to go through it real quick. Cronenberg uh, said, if I were a feminist, which in a non-militant way I think I am, I would say that Dead Ringers is a very astute uh, expose of certain things. The movie is partly about the whole attitude of certain men towards women. Uh, That's what the whole opening scene with the two kids is about. You know, if we can't figure them out, we can dissect one. Or if we can't deal with them on a personal level, we can deal with them in a control situation. Right. That's Mm. like you, I mean, going into those scenes, you're like, oh, that is all there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, like it's like overflowing with this um, this desire to control and to manipulate, but also there's like an implicit pleasure in it as well. It's like mm-hmm. a weird mixture that Cronenberg's so good at doing. Like he's not. I never go into a Cronenberg movie or come out of a Cronenberg thinking that like, oh, he thought A and represented A on the screen. It's yeah. really like he's exploring the topic on the screen. Yeah. Right. And he's he does not have a set way of thinking. I think he he doesn't know when he's beginning where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's like especially true in this movie where it by the end it is it's such a roller coaster um, that it, it, I have honestly I had a hard time pulling away kind of to criticize what I just said. I had a hard time <laughs> pulling away any sort of threads or thematic threads that I was connecting to. What mm. did you guys, when you watch this, you know, uh, <clears throat> this time, like what, what are you pulling from it in terms of like maybe a perspective that he was giving or a viewpoint or any sort of, I don't think there's any moral here, but something like that. Like what, what did you guys pull out of it this time? I, for me, it was connection. Like even yeah. that interaction at the start, the the trying to sort of work out the mystery of connection. Because on a scientific mm-hmm. basis, like we should we we can't live underwater. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. therefore that trans that, that transaction of sex is yeah. is is almost like a, a puzzle that you need to figure out. And them as young boys, like trying to a simple transaction of will you have sex with us? Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then the connection between them. And what I think is unknown that Cronenberg is trying to, to kind of explore there is the impact of once you have that connection, the, the internal impact on yourself. Mm. Yeah. And like one of the pieces of that opening scene is um, not just them propositioning the girl, um, but uh, the one of the twins, I forget if it's Beverly, but essentially finds out that, you know, there are so many species underwater that don't actually like have to, you know, have any kind of like physical mating ritual. And one of the twins says, Oh, I'd like that. Like this, (laughs) (laughs) there's, I mean, right. As soon as that happened, I was like, boom, body horror, just in dialogue form. Right. Or it's like, yeah, yeah. Incredible fear of, 
of physical connection. Um, yeah. And that, uh, and that kind of plays also with this, you know, cause I, the thing that I was interested in watching it, um, for a second time was trying to pinpoint kind of the things that lead up to, um, Bev and then Ellie too, eventually, but Bev first, I think is the one that starts the kind of disintegration process of like pulling apart from himself and losing his mind, um, with the help of drugs, but like, you know, everything from, um, Claire going to, you know, shoot a movie in a different city to, uh, having to like reconcile the whole idea of sharing in a different way. Um, now that they, you know, find out that they are, or they come to some kind of realization that they're, that they are two separate people and that they aren't as mm. connected as perhaps they originally thought. Yep. Um, I think those are just like, those are equally as horrific as any actual on screen gore. And I think it's also, uh, I mean, that's the thing about Cronenberg. I think one of the reasons he's so effective and so beloved as an auteur is because he finds like these strange pieces of humanity that are actually really universal. Like I think we all, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just outing myself as a complete weirdo, but I feel like no, no. growing up, like yeah. growing up, like sex is exciting when you hear about it, but it's also scary. And yeah. the idea of like breaking away from your family and like not being, you know, living in the same house as these people every day and mm -hmm. trying to become your own person. That's scary. And yeah, it really feels like, um, and I think he, I had a quote actually to go back to answer your question, Dan, um, where he kind of looked back on, uh, dead ringers. I don't remember if it was 20 or 30 years later. Um, uh, Oh shoot. Where is it? Somebody else go while I find this. Chris, you lost it. Yeah, well, I, I know. Think, lost thread. Um, uh, so here's the thing about that. Yeah, like there's this idea of separating yourself from. The tough part about this is that the relationship between the two, um, it is so intimate. It is so close. Mm. It is. It feels perverse. Right. From a, an emotional sort of almost incestuous level. Yeah. Like this is yeah. extreme codependency. Extreme. Yeah. Uh, and I think like that's that's where I think Cronenberg is so interesting because he's using this and he, he has some line about how with the fly he had to make he had to make the the fantastic seem real, but with this movie he had to, he had to make the real seem fantastic. That's good, right? yeah. So it's like he's he's taking a true story, he's taking something that really happened, and a lot of the beats did happen. The screw up in the the the, the slow deterioration of the, both of these men is a real thing, but he is he's making it and sort of enlivening it to the point where it becomes almost like a, maybe like a, it's tragic obviously, but is it like a parable about being too close about mm. sort of codependency, like imploding, like a star where you just, you can't separate yeah. yourself from somebody else. Yeah. That's where it's like, he swings back and forth on it because on one level they seem like they love each other. And they're supportive of each other, so it's good. But then all this fucked up shit happens because it's Ronenberg, yeah. right? Yeah, like, yeah. And you're just sort of like, oh, he's like, I want he uh, he's oddly a frustrating filmmaker, and that he will never give you any clear indication. Yeah, right. Okay. It's always okay. un. Yeah, go for it, Chris. I can get the. Quote. I found I found the quote now, yeah. and it, it, this ties in kind of nicely. Um, he said that at that point in his career, he had gotten a different response to Dead Ringers than any other previous movie. Every other previous movie, um, he got comments about how horrific and disgusting, <laughs> you know, what they saw was. But uh, he went to a screening in Toronto, and um, a doctor um, was in the crowd and asked him after the screening, "Can you tell me why I feel so fucking sad after having seen this film?" Mm. <laughs> and and yeah. so then he thought about it for a second, and he's like. I think that's what I wanted to get at, but couldn't articulate. It has nothing to do with gynecology or twins. It has to do with that element of being human, this ineffable sadness that isn't an element of human existence, which oh I think God. is like a more generalized version of what you're saying with like connectedness and codependency. But I think that's true. Like no matter what, whether it's like a familial relationship or romantic relationship, a friendship or like any kind of like human connection is got this kind oh, of, yeah built in sadness to it about, you know, mm. whether 
how it could end or how it could be tra- tragic or toxic or both. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a double-edged sword essentially, right? Yeah. 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 Especially um, with like the, the familial side of it. Like if you, yeah. if you're, I don't know, we grew up in a, a very close knit kind of family, like five people, five kids and two bedrooms kind of thing. And as soon as you kind of stepped out of being the character that you were as a member of that family and, and did something for yourself, people looked at you differently. You know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. it was almost like, are you a threat now? Like that's, that's kind of the vibe that you got. Like what you're going to forget, you but you're going to forget is? about us. Well, I, I think it's, it's like this, you're a new person. Like I grew up with you. I expect you to act a certain way. And yeah. now you're throwing the rhythm off. Like don't fuck with my chi kind of vibe. <laughs> and yeah. it just, it, right. it, it, it creates chaos in a um, dichotomy that just works as dysfunctionally or functionally as a family does. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, I think that happens here with Bev and Claire, right? Cause he develops yep. a real, like a real relationship. Mm. Yeah. And that's when and the like, bullshit it's starts. A threat. Yeah. It's a threat. <laughs> it's a threat to their, but what is it a threat to when you really think about it? Well, I, it- I almost think like, sorry, <laughs> no, go for it. no, go ahead. I almost think that while it's kind of codependency at times, it could be parasitic because yeah. Ellie needs to get something from Bev in that exchange. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's, that's, that's kind of Bev, Bev doing what he does is like, like serving over, does he say serving over hot snatches or something like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah something like he's, that. He's, he's so good at it. He's obviously the brains, whereas Ellie's kind of the, um, the social aspect of that. Right. Smooth talker. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and, uh, uh, the, the scene that actually that makes me think of the most has nothing to do with like um, sex or actual f- connection. It's like that scene where uh, Bev comes home um, from what, from an encounter with Claire and Ellie like asks for details. Like, tell me, tell me all the mm. spicy tidbits and, uh, and Bev doesn't want to. And <laughs> he like clearly is acknowledging that for the first time he has no interest in like, sharing he wants to keep something for himself Mm. and i think that was like just a really like that's a a great example of like cronenberg trying to stray a little bit from like the outwardly horrific stuff and kind of making that that connection because we've all had that experience where it's like you come home to somebody or you go out with somebody and they want you like they want to they want to pry they want to like get that gossip from you and Mm. You know, sometimes we're just like, we're just like, no, like <laughs> try yeah. to change the subject or like, I don't know. I think that that well, was, that was, that was a really good kind of microcosm of, of both the characters and what makes the movie kind of relatable despite how strange it is. Yeah. And that's like the, the restaurant scene. Yeah. It, it's mm. like this, um, the tension there and she obviously walks off because she's so upset with the, the situation. <laughs> um, I do find that's an interesting point. It's like, you know, what does Bev, what does he want to hide? Do, or does he want to hide anything? And, and I, what, you know, like, what is he, uh, because he, I don't know, privacy, like, does he want his own world? I think that's the thing he wants. His, he wants a piece of his own little world. Yeah. And, and then he won't let him have it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, Cronenberg uh, joked in an interview actually that uh, uh, he that Dead Ringers was his quote meditation on work life balance. <laughs> that idea. Oh, yeah, so. I mean, it's like a half joke though, right? Where it's like, you know, I I can't imagine. Like my wife and I talk about this. Like, can you imagine if we had to work together and then also come home to each other? It's like well, <laughs> that's, that's the reality that I had. I worked with with my um, with my wife before. Well when I met her, right. I also at the same time worked with my family. Mm. So, and the, like the bonds are strong both ways. And it's, it's funny. Maybe this is why dead ring is connected with me because while you're kind of working through that, there's like this, well, this is our normal process that we kind of go through and I'm going, but I want to have lunch with, (laughs) you know, this person over here. And that's when the threat comes in. What do I do now? Yeah. Who? What is the? What's the true nature of that threat? Because I think that's what the movie's all about, right? What is the real threat there? I I think that it's you're going to leave me. I'm going to be left alone. Yeah. 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 
And it seems that way, I think, even near the end of this. Yeah. I mean, it, it, what's crazy about this is the true story is, like, even more bonkers. Yeah. Than that. Like, it's more bonkers. Like, it, the way that they ended up dying, um, mm. they don't even know how they died. They yeah. couldn't figure it out. It wasn't an overdose. They didn't have any drugs in their system, really. Um, and I think, I forget which one died. They have different names in, in real life. Mm. But one of them died a few days before the other. Right. Yeah. And then he started like walking, like he left the apartment. He came back with his dead body face yeah. down on the bed. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just and like, what would possess you? I mean, it's just like a. Well, I thought, I thought that was an interesting detail. Obviously, they condensed it for the movie. He just leaves basically to go use the payphone to call yeah, Claire. Exactly. Yeah. And then returns. Um, and, you know, even if you didn't know that detail that was from the true story, like it's, 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 it's strange, but it's also symbolic as hell. Like the place, the place that he goes to um, mm. temporarily is like a symbol of connection. Right. And as soon as Claire answers the phone and, you know, he realizes that like that whole thing is gone. He's like, okay, well back to my brother, I'm going to go, you know, die with him. Um, yeah. It's so, it's funny. so sad. It's so sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it, I think, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I found it, the movie to be, um, yeah, super bleak. I think when you had that quote before about the doctor, there's another yeah. quote that came to mind from Roger Ebert. Uh, he goes, uh, dead ringers is a stylistic tour de force, but it's cold and creepy and centered on bleak despair. It's the kind of movie where you ask people how they liked it and they say, well, it was well made. And then they wince, you know, it's like, I kind of feel that way. It's, um, <laughs> And, and I don't know, and this might be a little bit of a criticism because I would say, you know, I'm not the, like, I'm not a Cronenberg scholar. Like, I haven't seen every film that he's made, but I've seen mm. most of them. In yep. this one, um, I think, here's the thing, despite how well made it is, despite the amazing performances, I think to me, there's a little bit of the playfulness that is missing from his other movies. Mm. Like Videodrome and Scanners and Shivers and Rabbit, his earlier stuff uh, was uh, gonzo and fun and off the wall. And this mm. is none of that, right? Yeah. This is, it's very bleak and very cold. Mm. And so I was left, you know, after seeing it for the first time, I was left like, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And it was a really fascinating movie. And it's going to make me think a lot. Mm. But I kind of felt like my enjoyment level of it wasn't necessarily uh, matched by his other movies. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Or where do you guys put this in your Cronenberg sort of echelon? You know, I, I definitely, it was not, it was probably like in the middle of the pile for me back when I first saw it because of that same similar kind of reaction. But I also think it's perhaps a movie that rewards rewatches um, mm. despite its kind of clinical bleakness. Mm. And, and I have to admit, like after watching it again, I, it might be my favorite Cronenberg. Why wow. is that though? Why? I, I there's something. Okay, so first off, I think a lot of the darkly comedic beats I didn't pick up on the on my first watch. I I think the first half of the movie is like really perversely hilarious because it's so much like it's it's like literally like playing with the sitcom premise of like twins pretending to be just like a Freaky Friday type thing or not Freaky Friday. <laughs> you have a sick mm, sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, no, so does Cronenberg, right? That's true, 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 right, true. And and I think that there's like this, uh, I don't. There's this like kind of tone that he hits that just feels not only like you know, his best work elsewhere in his filmography, but also is just like, I can't think of another movie that, f that hits the way that dead ringers hits. Mm. And like, I, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I think like from like the iconography of like the, 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 what the, they wear in surgery yeah, to the, reds, the, the sculptures cloaks. of the, yeah, the instruments for, um, mutant women, um, and then the and then just like I I also love that I could watch this movie a second time. Yeah, admittedly, like you know, eighteen years later, but still, like I could watch <laughs> it for a second time. And the only thing I really remember is that it's got great acting and those images that are unforgettable. And it still mm. felt like a journey. It still felt like there's so many pieces that could be interpreted in so many ways. Kind of like you were saying at the top of the show, Dan. 
Um, but I do agree that it's a difficult watch. I also know mm. that I just got a video drum on Blu-ray and I need to rewatch that for the first uh, time in 20 years. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that might like be literally implodes my mind. That like, might be my favorite, despite the presence of James Woods. Rob, what do you think? What do you, where do you, would you put this, uh, this movie in your sort of your opinion of Cronenberg films? So I, I guess for me, story wise, it's probably the top of what I've seen of Cronenberg. I haven't seen everything. Yeah. Um, but in, in terms of, of entertainment, just pure entertainment value, I would probably go the fly. Um, but this just had, had so much going for it. I mean, this is the first watch for me, but it, it it just, it captured so much. And there, there is a fear of when you're in that, that sort of the operating room, the hospital, the delivery suite when like, you know, your, your wife's in labor, it's a scary feeling. And this happened to just capture that tension the whole way through. And it's, it's not just straight tension, like horror tension, it's tension. But then there's also like this underlying adrenaline vibe. We don't know what's going to happen. And just how close they were as brothers and whatnot. And that linkage there, it's, it is kind of unmatched and you don't expect it to be as, as hard hitting and, and as impactful as it actually is because the movie by like action entertainment sort of standards, just it's, it doesn't hit those high beats of there's something happening every yeah. 10 pages or whatnot. Right. But in That's terms fair. of the relationships between the two of them and Claire and, and the, the roller coaster ride that they go through, it's just, it's amazing on a personal level. Like I can't imagine Stuart and Cyril Marcus going through this day by day, but I can see the simplicity of death. And this might be a little bit bleak, but the simplicity of death because of um, the twins, because living a double life, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about the chaos that would ensue from trying to hold your brother up or sharing every little detail. And that's stressful. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, like, I, I kind of, I kind of get where they were going at the end and it's a scary thought, but it's Cronenberg. So you go with <laughs> <Yeah>. it, right? <laughs> go into yeah. the darkness with him. Yeah. Um, uh, two fun, about- two fun it, facts yeah. before we move on. Yeah. Um, wait, I would be remiss uh, to not mention the fact that uh, when this movie was in production, it had the working title of Twins. Hmm. And, yes. of course, yeah, we know why. 1988, yeah. they had to find a new title. And, you know, I think it's it ended up being for the better. Yeah, um, we I got think. paid off. I read that on the spin article. Oh, we got paid nice. off for it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, get that bag, David. Um, he, uh, he, uh, right. Um, he, uh, I think, very much... Um, like made this movie not just because he wanted to get out of that kind of uh pigeonhole um but like i think it's it's important to note that he also like fought tooth and nail with dino de Laurentiis, uh you know the famed yeah, you know exactly. 80s producer um yeah. set up his own production company to keep the project going uh and the initial financial backers for the movie started circling the drain as soon as they started getting more details other than the fact like it's from the guy who did scanners and the fly like as soon as yeah. they get the log line it's like wait a second i don't know if this is actually gonna like turn, <laughs> turn us a lot of money in this right mm. right exactly um <laughs> But yeah, I do think that uh, uh, you guys make fair points. I think I'm just, uh, I think I might just be more depressed than both of you. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we do have to mention, right, and uh, we, you, you mentioned this, Rob, when we were uh, DMing about setting up the episode is, uh, of course, it's uh, good timing to talk about Dead Ringers because it's being rebooted yes. um, by mm. Rachel Weiss. And uh, Alice, oh, I forgot her last name, but um, Succession Writer and... Okay. Uh, it's gonna is, be a, is it a movie series. or a series it's a series wow i guess that makes sense yeah 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 i don't know i'm skeptical a little bit but I it's gonna know. be fun watch it's gonna be fun watch it will be interesting especially in the wake of like your comment about cronenberg's uh you know feminist reading of the story and yes that's true with mm. uh women at the center but they are lesbians and okay uh 
So I don't know how that'll play into it from a GL- LGBTQ angle too. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Let's talk about a little uh, serpent in the rainbow. Oh yeah, Wes Craven. <laughs> Never seen this before. Huge Wes Craven fan. Um, I don't know why I avoided this one. Seen? Yeah, I'm wondering. It just looks dumb. <laughs> it <always> looks stupid <laughs> to me. Oh, it, totally, it totally looks dumb. <laughs> right? And I'm like, uh, I don't really. And I, I never heard good things about it. I kind of mm-hmm. always started like, yeah, you can kind of skip this. It's not like a, it's not like top tier uh, Craven. Uh, what do you? What's your guys' story with this movie? You guys seen it before? Or is this first watch? First watch for me too. Uh, oh, I actually cool. thought this movie was about vampires. <laughs> because so the, with the poster and i thought bill pullman was actually a woman weirdly okay. the first time that i seen the poster mm. i was like there is a woman in a coffin with a cross on her head oh yeah I you know what that. i mean yeah. so yeah. hearing that he was in the film and, and actually seeing it i was like i was completely wrong uh, i had never <laughs> i'd never heard anything about the movie before <laughs> so this was yeah this was wild for me so i had a kind of weird journey with this movie because I often got it mixed up um, when I was younger with uh, the layer of the white worm, which oh, uh, yeah, totally ha- has yeah. like a similar kind of vibe, even if they yeah. don't have anything else other than common other than like they have some pretty, you know, uh, outrageous things happen in them. Um, but uh, I like had um, kind of a, a phase in middle school where like I'd watched tales from the crypt and there was a, a, at least one voodoo related episode. And so, yeah, I, I did check out some books from the school library about oh, Haiti and voodoo. Nerd and nerd I think I, I, love it. I had, a, I had at least one teacher that was concerned about me. Um, <laughs> but then, that sounds like so, exactly something I would have done. Yeah. But similar to, uh, um, like how I came across Cronenberg with the fly, uh, early on as a movie geek, this was on basic cable and I don't think it was monster vision, but it was definitely just like, a, oh, okay. yeah. like I had flipped it on, not knowing what it was, not knowing that it was Wes Craven, even though at that point I probably had seen at least nightmare on Elm street and swamp thing. Mm. And, uh, just like got drawn in because obviously I, I was kind of obsessed with like learning about the, the fact versus fiction aspects of voodoo. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, I hadn't watched it since I was a kid, and I don't think I actually ever watched it in full, and definitely hadn't watched it uncensored. So this was kind of a first, wa- more of a first watch for me than the Dead Riggers was. Nice. What do we think? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, well, the tr- what about the true story about this? Right? Yeah, so we got to start there, and then uh, we'll get into how well we think they executed it. So it, you know, it's a, har- a guy from Harvard, right? Harvard anthropologist <laughs> writes a pretty famous book. Uh, by the same name kind of makes a splash and this comes out what f- five years later maybe yeah. not even maybe less yeah three years later um, three, three years later yeah. so really quick turnaround the book's criticized a bit you know he goes down to haiti to study um the voodoo religion um and it seems like a little bit of like creative nonfiction yeah where uh he's maybe taking liberties with his story and it seemed a little bit too like um too well curated the story itself mm. um i don't know do you guys know did you know anything about the book you ever heard about it before never no, no. i i didn't i i you know based on my slight memories of my f- middle school phase like i knew about this idea of zombification as a part of uh voodoo culture and the religion and um that there was a lot of skepticism about it you know how how much it actually made someone uh die and then come back to life but Mm. other than that like no i did not know about like the actual you know (laughs) attempt by uh you know, a, an American to, you know, legitimize basically this aspect of uh, voodoo in the Western world. That, that seems like that's, it's just, it's, it, you know, especially like, you know, after having gone to college and knowing everything about, you know, colonization and uh, dictatorships and all that from mm. um, uh, Caribbean history, it's, it's actually, I think kind of incredible that not only did Wes Craven adapt that book, um, but that he kind of, you know, you could, you could definitely make an argument for the second half of the movie, but I'd say at least the first half of the film does a, at least a decent job at being respectful to the culture and people of Haiti, despite yeah. the fact that it's, you know, once again, a white protagonist. Um, 
and see yeah, I, don't, I don't i don't know did you did you guys feel i didn't get a huge sense of exploitation happening here right uh, obviously it's going to be because it's a hollywood movie shooting down there they got to pay people there's money going back and forth there, there's yeah. some exploitation obviously happening but i think from your perspective like the story and stuff it seems like it is trying to delve into the the reality of that world right at least considering the time period yeah yeah mm. i don't know rob, rob what'd you think um, no, I don't, I don't think it was exploitative at all. I, I'm pretty sure Wes Craven wanted to shoot on location, but because of everything that was happening during the time, he had to leave and go to the DR, a Dominican Republic. Um, but I, I guess from, from a, a story character point of view, you have this Harvard um, anthropologist going into indigenous communities, paying them basically peanuts, and yeah. taking it back yeah. and and making a mozza over, like you know, over in the states and yeah. big farmer. Yeah, I mean that whole part of it is like um, it's interesting because when I'm watching it, I'm sort of like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense why this is happening and and why this is going on. But did it, it didn't necessarily feel like um, Craven was doing that satirically. I mean, it's part of the actual mm. story, but yeah. it didn't seem like he was doing it over the top to satirize that. I don't know. Did I, am I being too harsh on him? Do we no. feel like he was trying to push that and be like, Oh, this is obviously bullshit. And big farmers <laughs> like, you know, destroying <laughs> these people and it's all a lie and facade. What do you, I yeah. don't know. I mean, I, I think, think that was, what's that going was to sound a, really a political filmmaker though. Right. Right. Well, no. I mean, we, we talked, we, this is our second Craven film for the show, right? We did last house on the last left, house on the left when yeah, we were nice. discussing the, uh, the birth of, you know, self-aware horror. And I don't remember, did we mention on the show, like the, like theories out there about how it was actually a Vietnam protest film? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. And that, that, I mean, he said all that, right? right? Like it definitely was an attempt to do that, but like, in that movie, I, I will buy that in that movie because it was absolutely fucking nuts what they were doing. Like, it was insane. Like, they should have been arrested for making that movie. Um, but with this one, it's sort of like, I don't know. He doesn't see, he seems to be pulling a lot of punches to get like a good movie or what he thinks is a good movie on screen. Or an entertaining yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I yeah. think I mean, that's what, fair. The, the love scene. Come on. Was, was, I, was yeah, it Craven's yeah. first love scene? Oh, I don't think I've good... seen a Wes Craven love scene. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. I, there's nothing the last time the last time left you could call that. No, um, come on. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Um, but yeah, I, I felt that was like what hammy. Like, yeah, what's going on? It's so like I couldn't stop thinking about the difference between Wes Craven and David Cronenberg. Like watching <laughs> sure. these movies back to back, and both, you know, obviously in the horror genre. Um, whereas, like. I think Cronenberg um, oh, never pulls punches. Dead Ringers, he doesn't pull punches because he just wanted to make a different type of film, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the rest of his career, he's never interested in making um, like a super blockbuster film. He, it's just not his thing. He flirts with it. Like The Fly is a good example. He flirts with it a bit. Yeah. But even yeah. like his most recent movie, Crimes of the Future, um, there's nothing marketable about that film zero uh, <laughs> yeah. not, most of his movies are like that whereas craven you know he while he's also an intellectual like cronenberg he wants to entertain people yes he wants to make a movie that is palatable and he mm. thinks about that a lot um and i think that you can see that in the serpent and the rainbow he wants to make an engaging scary movie yeah. um did you guys see that or is that uh, did it work yeah. I mean, I, I, I might make the argument that he was trying to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, okay. He did, <laughs> he did do an uh, interview with Fangoria um, when the movie came out, and he self-described the film as a quote adult political thriller. And then, so I do think that that's kind of where <laughs> there is a little bit of overlap between what kind of Cronenberg is doing at this point in his career okay. and then Craven. I think it yeah. backfired on him, unlike yeah. Cronenberg. Um, but I do, I, I, I don't know. I, I want to give Craven a little more credit that he was at least aware of it, if not really paying too much attention to how to necessarily make that happen in the final product. Well, yeah. Rob, what do you think? Who you got? I mean, I, I reckon that what he was trying to do 
was show you that the process of zombification was real. But through factually breaking down that it's a, it's a state that you can be put in through these narcotics. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's, that's where it was kind of draw, drawing the fear from. But I definitely got the political aspect with the, the tensions rising in, in Haiti uh, yeah. during, during that time. And I think that's where he kind of drew from. But then by the end, it just goes full <laughs> on like genre, it's, like straight yeah, into his like roots. Shocker. Yeah, Nailing like he, yeah. he's he's going like full nightmare on Elm Street with some of the sequences, and yeah, it just. I, but you I, know, I think at that point it it, it kind of drops in quality, right? Yo, and I one, would agree. Yeah, one of the pieces, other than like yeah, the just like ridiculous <laughs> fight sequence between. Yeah. <laughs> you should never have Bill Pullman in a fight sequence, first of all. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. Um, but um, two things, like. I am still gonna like defend the the visual prowess of Craven here. Like there were yeah. some st- things going on um, throughout, and I think that's one of the things he plays with well. And he, it's almost like uh, a, a little bit of building off of the Nightmare on Elm Street style, right? Of that like disconnect between dreams and reality, and uh, uh, also like some of the effects recalled for me. And uh, I, once again, Dan and I rewatched this recently, or I rewatched it. He saw it for the first time. Um, the seventies Japanese film house yep. with like a lot of the composite effects and the use of color and all that is, I think that's still, I think that's still interesting and fun to watch. Um, yeah. But then the other piece, which is that, you know, the, the main antagonist Petro is, is, is pretty awfully uh, depicted throughout as just like, you know, the all out evil. Um, but then there's the character of uh, Mozart, the the guy that gets them the drug mm. and how and that kind of, that i think that's like how his character ends at the end where he's just like you know what here have the drug anyway bring it back yeah. to big pharma <laughs> where it's like okay maybe there wasn't really too much thought yeah. put into how to how to wrap this all up in a way that is actually trying to say anything about the political climate yeah. of Haiti. Mm. <laughs> i mean he tried there's definitely a yeah, huge, there there's definitely an attempt, an attempt here. Um, and like, there's, there's also a parallel to the book. I didn't read the book, but I like watched a YouTube video of some guy reviewing the book. So I have some knowledge of it, um, <laughs> but it's like uh, the tie of um, tying in like the zombification with authoritarianism and how it's like controlling people. Like that's, that's mm. apparent in the movie. Like it's very clear. And that's also a big point of the book as well. Um, I, I think, he like Craven. I love him to death. Uh, he's one of my favorite filmmakers by far, but he just, he can't really, it's almost like, um, when he has an, his own original idea, last house on the left was him. Uh, mm. nightmare in Elm street was him. That yeah. was his entire concept, uh, stream as well. I mean, well, it's Kevin Williamson, but it's kind of his sort of like viewpoint of um, horror movies and slashers and like doubling back on his own career Mm. when it's it's like a whole nother sort of an idea that doesn't come from his past or kind of his creative fountain or whatever. He struggles like it Mm. just it, it never felt like to me Craven really understood the source material all that much. Or maybe yep. didn't have a lot of respect for it um, because it just the whole thing or maybe it was just a failed attempt. I don't know. Uh, whatever it is. I think, Chris, you're right. The visuals are cool. Like the snake thing out of the, uh, out of the zombie's mouth is pretty oh, yeah, awesome. Lovely. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the performances are, you know, um, who's oh. the, the female uh, lead? She was from Mona Lisa. Yeah. Kathy uh, Tyson. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's great, but it's just. The whole thing feels like it's just kind of like a, a narrative house of cards, and then by the, like the last half hour, it just collapses. Mm-hmm. And you're just yeah. like, eh. I mean, that's kind of my viewpoint of it. it. To me, it definitely is. If you're a Wes Craven fan or a horror fan, definitely watch it because there's some redeeming things. Mm. But when I compare it to something like Dead Ringers, it's not even in the same ballpark. No, no, right? no definitely not. It's yeah. it's uh, it's it's fun. It's fun trash it's that fun has trash. some that has yeah. some pieces in it that are can be picked apart and considered, but definitely not much more than that. I kind of want to read the book though. Yeah, the book sounds bonkers, right? Uh, and and, and like, really the fun. zombie drug, despite you know, probably not actually causing 
death and resurrection, it does mm. seem to cause like a enslaved style comatose. Yeah, it's like yeah. a derivative, like the puffer fish poison. Right, I think, is what they use. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the, the the whole. I mean, obviously, there's a reason why like twelve year old me checked out a book on voodoo, but like, <laughs> well, it does seem like um like such a fascinating religion. Yeah, and like it's yeah. very um like hierarchical and there's layers to it. It's not just like this. Oh, we drug people and make them into zombies. There's like a whole super complex system right. that's going on with all these mm. different beliefs and sort of tokens and iconography. So it's kind of cool in that aspect. And you get that sort of like an, an anthropologist going into this completely foreign place and trying to understand the system that is so convoluted and different. Yeah. Um, but then he tries to wrap it in kind of uh, a schlocky B zombie movie. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah, tough. Like, it's like that intellectual richness doesn't, for some reason, doesn't fit into what he was trying to do. Yeah. Where it's like, I, what if David Cronenberg directed this? That would be <laughs> amazing, I feel yeah. like. I feel like he would like, have the ability to really hit it out right. of the ballpark. Um, yeah. Should we do some trivia? Yes, let's, let's round this off. Right. Okay, here's how it works, Rob. I've got um, five uh, synopses. Um, so I'm going to describe a film to you, and it's a film based on a true story. And you tell me whether they actually made a movie out of that strange true story or not. Is the film it's that I'm off. describing real or fake? All Chris right. is good at this, so just uh, be warned. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Number one, we're looking at the year of 1982. Uh, from new German cinema auteur Wim Wenders comes this meta-take on noir, based on a true story experienced by Maltese Falcon novelist and former private eye Dashiell Hammett. He uh, once got caught up in the later years of his life with a case that drew him out of retirement. It concerned a missing Chinatown prostitute, a million-dollar blackmail scheme, and a stolen Pulp Fiction manuscript by Hammett himself. Was that an actual movie? That's got to be false. That's I'm gonna, gonna be, say, yeah. I'm gonna agree with you, Rob. I think that's false. It's true. God damn it! Oh, I told you it was good. Uh, it's, <laughs> it, it's it's called just, it's called Hammett, and um, it was the brainchild of producer Francis Ford Coppola, who supposedly re ghost directed and reshot the whole film when execs what? at Orion when execs wow. at Orion <laughs> saw vendors cut and claim, and called it quote too European. Oh my god! Can we see this? Can we add this? Yeah. This sounds amazing. I know. I totally want to see it. Now. <laughs> um, okay. Next one. 1983. From choreography, from choreography legend and writer director Bob Fosse comes his only non-musical effort: a dramatization of the scandalous true story of a Playboy bunny whose tragic rise and demise is wrapped up in romantic intrigue, a sleazy agent, and allegations against Hugh Hefner himself. Well, I'm going. I I almost think that's that's true as well. I'm gonna say that it's false. Rob's got it one on you, Dan. That God one is true. Damn it. Um it's a movie I, I almost picked for this episode um because it sounds so fascinating. Uh had no idea that Bob Fosse made a non-musical movie, a much less one based on a true story uh about a Playboy bunny who gets murdered. Um it's called Star Eighty. Mariel Hemingway was the lead, huh. and Eric Never Roberts even. plays the no agent, idea. and he got a Golden Globe nomination for it. Nice. Eric Roberts. Yeah, Love I know. <laughs> okay, next one. 1986. From the filmmaker behind The Who's Tommy and Altered States comes the sordid retelling of an infamous night in British literary history, when Frankenstein author Mary Shelley and romantic poet Lord Byron, among other notable luminaries of the time period, spent an evening together sharing ghost stories under the influence of experimental drug compounds. True. <sighs> I want to say it's false. That one's true as well. I know. Wow. I've heard that story before. I've heard that story. The classic teacher trick of three in a row of the same yeah. answer. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, that's by Ken Russell, who yes, did Layer okay. of the White Worm. It's called Gothic. And there's actually been four different iterations of this uh, story being retold, um, either wow. on TV or in movies. Because um, yeah. I remember hearing about that whole, yeah, them like telling ghost stories together. Yeah. Yeah. Very, um, very interesting. That's um, so cool. Oh, one left, two left. Two left, two left. Right. 1987. From the director of Repo Man and Sid and Nancy comes this wild and unconventional Western, featuring music by The Clash's Joe Strummer, who also has a cameo in the film, and based on the real life of William Walker, an outrageous lawyer and journalist that declared himself president of Nicaragua in the 1850s, played by Ed Harris. 
I want to say this is false. <laughs> so do I. I want to say false. No, false. This is also true. I did four in a row for you. I know. I'm going to do five in a row. What's this called? Alex Cox was the director. The movie's just called Walker. Um, it was the <laughs> rare movie that received zero stars from both Cisco and Ebert. Oh, nice. Love that. Must see. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta see that. How do you declare yourself president of Nicaragua? Wow. Wow. Um, I guess you just do it. Right. <laughs> 1989. Last one, guys. Okay. Based on a spree of murders in Japan known as the Alice Killings, this adaptation, transplanted to Miami for American audiences, was by Louis Teague, who made 1982's Cujo, uh, stars Christopher Walken as a grizzled detective tasked with putting together the clues of several seemingly unconnected crime scenes wherein each corpse is accompanied by a single playing card with the word Alice written in blood on it. I'm going to say true. Yeah, this sounds true. This one's the false one, guys. What? But I think, I think David Fincher should make it and you can just that call it. Cool. Yeah. Isn't the Alice, is that Alice Killings real though? Yeah, that's real. Okay, the, that's because I've heard that movie made about it yet. Okay, Which, why yeah. not? Why not? That seems like prime Fincher material. Uh, yeah, and like still cask walking though. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Mine hundred <laughs> sure, season three. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, don't torment me. <laughs> no, it's never coming back. It's never coming back. Rob, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it, man. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. This was fun. fun. What do you guys got have coming up on your podcast soon? Um, so we just watched Air. We just got okay. a preview. Oh just yeah, went to a preview screening of that. Um, Evil Dead Rise as well. Oh, coming, yes. I can't so wait for that. Coming up so really, excited. really soon. We just got invited to that one too. So um, yeah, excellent man. Pumped. That and fun. of course, more Yellow Jackets. Yes. More everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I recommend the show. It's a great way to get caught up on uh, movie news while on your commute. Um, it's called Smoke and Mirrors. Uh, where can people find you? The usual places. Yeah, all all the social media, including TikTok, YouTube as well. Yeah, we're awesome, we're man. everywhere. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank we'll you. Be back. What's next with uh, Film Trace, Chris? What do we got? We got 1970s. Uh, you picked the movies this time. Oh uh, yeah, Dog Day Afternoon and Straight Time. I'm excited. I've nice. never seen Straight Time. It's gonna be it's gonna be a fun one. Uh, awesome. Thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. <laughs> <laughs>